everybody, just a note, this episode contains adult themes and language. So a few of my college teammates and I are at this bar, right? And we're standing in some corner, drinking cranberry juice or ginger ale, whatever. And this girl approaches me and asks if I want to dance. And so we're dancing. And after about three or four songs, she asks if I want to leave. And I'm like, for what? And then she looks at me like, motherfucker, I am trying to take you home and have sex with you right now. Do not ask me for what? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I said, oh, but a light bulb just went off in my head. And and then so we left. And so we get to our house and it's this huge Victorian and all the lights are off. And so I'm, I'm already a little wary and suspicious about her motivations. And now I'm thinking she's either about to rob me or I'm about to be an accessory to a robbery. But then she kissed me and then we made our way upstairs and... My most vivid memory of that experience was her clock, right? It was it was a rectangular digital clock on her nightstand, black with these bright red lights. Like one of them nuclear clocks you'd see above giant maps in movies about hijacked Russian submarines. A Tom Clancy-esque clock. What made the clock so prominent then was anxiety. I mean, it, it was my first time. But I didn't want her to know that. I mean, I felt like I was supposed to be and expected to be Will Chamberlain when I was actually AC Green. <laughs> so I convinced myself that the best way to conceal my virginity was just to be really, really, really good at sex. And at that time, I thought being really good meant to go as long as possible. I mean, I, I'd hear girls talk shit about one minute men. I mean, shit, Missy Elliott even had that song. So I thought, since a one minute man is the worst thing to possibly be, why not be the opposite of that? And so there we were, locked in missionary. And a minute stretched into five, five to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 35, 45, 50, 52, 65, 72, 99. So this is stuck with Damon Young. A show exploring, deconstructing, laughing at and finding community and the tension between who we are, who we're expected to be, and who we want to be. On today's episode, we're talking about sex, specifically just all the weird and, and awkward and terrifying intra-racial anxieties we have about heterosex, where they come from, and how they impact our behavior. I've been fortunate that, you know, the men that I've really, you know, uh, been into have for the most part um, um, been decent partners or at least, or at least uh, pride themselves on being decent partners. <laughs> That's Sayada Grundy, assistant professor of sociology, African-American studies and women and gender studies at Boston University. And I, I wanted to reach out to her because I knew she could provide some context for some of these anxieties we have about sex. Also, she's a homie, and I knew she'd have some funny shit to say. Obviously, you know, I'm presuming, I'm presuming you remember the first time you had sex. Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> 
Now, it what, was at nerd camp. Did I tell you that? Okay. What anxieties did you have going into the act? And what anxieties did you have, if any, during the act? That's an interesting question. I'm trying to remember if I was, first of all, I was 20 years old, 19 or 20. I'm going to say I was 20. So I was like, it was after my sophomore year of college. Did you feel like you were old? I'm a country mouse. You know, I come from Kentucky. Mm. And going down to Spelman was the first time I was really around these urban slash suburban black kids who seemed like they had just experienced things way ahead of me. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. part of that really is the structure of living a suburban lifestyle. You're much more liberated at, you know, 14, 15, 16. You're in far more activities. They had, you know, far more chances to not only meet black kids, but they also went to high schools with Mm -hmm. lots of black kids, including black boys. In my high school, it just wasn't it just I mean, there were plenty of kids in my high school fucking it was just like a thing you did if you were a girl who wore a nose ring, right? It was not a thing you did maybe if you were the black girl in the AP classes. So I definitely, when I got to college, met all these different types of black kids for whom losing your virginity in high school seemed to be standard. So I, yeah, I definitely, um, I felt like in many ways I was underdeveloped compared to um, my friends. I wasn't particularly stigmatized by that. So my experience, I don't remember being anxious, actually. Probably the only anxiety I really did have if I was being conscious about it, which I probably wasn't, Uh is I just didn't want to get involved with a dude who would try to sour my reputation or like make me regret it. So your anxiety was more about, I guess, I guess what could possibly come after, like in terms of the hit to your reputation, but not the act not the act itself. The act itself, I was not anxious about. It was the anxiety about like, I, you know, this is a place where boys really love, you know, doing that game of, of showing, you know, the kill, showing the antlers mm-hmm. of their kill. Um, and that anxiety, I think, continued for me throughout college. <laughs> well, it's funny that, you know, because I'm thinking about my first time and my anxieties, but I wasn't concerned about or reputation being sullied in terms of, oh, you know, this nigga had sex and now he's 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 ruined. It's more about, yo, this nigga was trash. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay. That, right. that was that was my concern and also being trash and, and and it getting out there. Yeah. You know, and and people talking about it and whatnot. And so in the time, you know, twenty years has passed since then, do you have any anxieties now in terms of like when you when you first when you're first with somebody so this is interesting to me i think my pre-clearance is so like i i am the department of justice when it comes to goddamn Mm. pre-clearance so by the time that i'm really comfortable with you sort of emotionally physically for me that that is showtime is nothing okay so your your vetting process is so intense that once you get to the actual act that it's um that at that point it's gravy but the actual the actual act itself isn't something that causes you any sort of deep anxiety and it's interesting because you know for me um younger and even even today you know it's a mix of both like today it's it's you know obviously I'm married but when I was single I wasn't as concerned about you know shit getting out there because I also did the vet Right. I also made sure that people that I was with 
were going to be not the type of people who was going to go run off and tell everybody and do what not. So it was more about performance. I subscribed to the whole 50 cent thing, magic stick. You know, if you're good at it, once you hit <laughs> once, you can hit twice. And that, that was like my goal. It was like, you know what? I just want to make sure she invites me back. <laughs> for, for some reason, so many cis men have convinced themselves that sex is something you do to someone versus sex is something had with someone. Look, I've had literally men who immediately after the act wanted me to give them like a letter grade. Like it was something they were recording for themselves. Like, like was that your best ever? And I'm like, no, a one time with someone is never, if not for me. Mm. The first time with somebody, if you care about them. Right? Yeah. From, and, and I'm speaking again from a, from a cisgender male perspective, man who has sex with women. The first time, if you care about somebody, it's not going to be your best time because you're going to have all the, all this shit happening, all these anxieties in your head about, okay, does she like this? Yeah. Is she, is she okay with this? It, it, am I acceptable? <laughs> it's my equipment. You yeah, know right, I mean? right, right. Up the par for her, all, all of that and all those things that could be determined that first time. And so it's that second time, third time that you, you know, that those anxieties become somewhat alleviated and the comfort comes in and then that's when it starts getting you know getting better sometimes like the first time you know the first i mean the first time shouldn't be awful shouldn't be terrible but i feel like it should get better oh no i, I completely agree and i think that yeah. that is again i think that cis men think of themselves as like oh i'm a marquee player and my stats are about maintaining my stats on every court. And I'm like, no, you're playing with the team, son. Not everybody has chemistry with the team. It's like you could you could put Jordan on the Rockets. He wouldn't have the same like 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 same stats. Like it's about the chemistry with the team. Well, when did you realize um, that men had anxiety? That that males, men, whatever, had anxiety about about this, about that. Oh, probably. You know what? I think I realized men had anxiety before I realized men had sexual anxiety. So, right? Okay. So it's like, I think understanding, um, I think particularly in college, because college was the time I was around the most uh, black male so peers. You picked up on that in college. Oh, the, oh the my sexual gosh. anxiety. Male and the sexual anxiety. I, I Was that a conversation up... that you had with, with a partner or with, with no, friends? No, but it was, it was extremely palpable that men had sort of pecking order anxieties with amongst each other. It was extremely palpable. They were working out their anxieties on uh, women and sometimes other men. Um, you know, that that to me, it's like, to me, that wasn't um, about disaggregating the sexual stuff from general hmm. male insecurity. I mean, I think I peeped, before I had the language for it, I peeped that this thing called patriarchy was also about the relationship of men to each other. Um, and that, you know, it, it, I mean, again, you know, observing Morehouse, which has become, you know, my, you know, research, um, you know, expertise, observing male interactions there was really key for me because you then understand like, oh, this thing I think men are doing to women is as much about their relationships with each other and finding this pecking order with each other and impressing each other. And living up to each other's standards. Um, and that, to me, to know that they had sexual anxiety still wasn't necessarily about impressing women. It was about making sure other men knew how they were with women, right? I, I still don't think that 
sexual anxiety is just about the relationship of, you know, cis, you know, straight men to anyone else or, or any kind of man to anyone else. I absolutely believe that there's a level of just finding your pecking order amongst your group and that which made sex different for men than it was for, you know, for, for cis women, because I didn't feel a pecking order with my female peers around sex. There might've been a little bit of that around dating, right? Mm -hmm. Who you were associated with in terms of dating. And there, I think there was some of that around desirability, what men desire you, how many, you know, men desire you. And then this was just like, this was just, you know, sort of straight girl stuff that we worked out in college. But there wasn't the same sort of exigency, that same sort of urgency in finding your pecking order amongst, amongst you know, women that I, I absolutely found palpable in men. But yeah, it, it definitely exists. It, and, and it's definitely a part of, I guess, how we, how we, how we think of ourselves as, as sexual, sexual people, yeah. um, you know, from, from, you know, the number of partners you're able to, you're able to get um, how many orgasms, you know, each, each you get each. And, and it's not like we have like a running ledger. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like, you know, we're, we're doing compare, you know, compare and contrast analogies or anal- analyzing shit, you know, on like a data sheet. Like, you know what? I made her come four times. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I, I guess that the hierarchy is... Um, is false, you know, for, for many reasons, but it's also dependent on, okay, well, we, we, we think that this guy, you know, has a certain level of prowess because he's uh-huh. been associated with this woman and that woman and this woman and that woman. And so if he's associated with all these women, then they obviously must be talking amongst each other. And if they're talking amongst each other and he's still able to date and sleep with all these other women, that must mean that he is doing his thing. You know what I mean? And so that's how the that's how the hierarchy is like. Cause there's not necessarily like a locker room sort of like measure because you, you don't know. Yeah, no, you absolutely. You don't know what other people are other men are packing or, or whatever unless you watch porn and that is not a good right, not a good um, not a, a realistic yeah. assessment. But I would even <laughs> I would even add to that, and maybe this was again uh more in our sort of immature younger days. I don't think men gave a damn about actually the pleasure women experience with them, it was about the disposability of women, right? It was about, you know, and it was not only about the disposability of women, it was about the ability to organize women into a hierarchy. Who was desirable as, you know, girlfriend material? Who was, you know, who could you run through? Could you, you know, get women to be jealous of each other over you? Could you get women who were desirable to other men? Like the actual, and that's, and that's what's so funny, for all of the energy spent on that, I don't think there was actually much energy around the the activity of sex. It was just the acquisition of sex. See, I I, I disagree slightly, just just because, and and again, the um the interest and pleasure could be performative. Yeah, right. True. Where you know your only models of of sex is watching pornography. Yeah, and when women experience pleasure in pornography, they are very loud. They, you know, they call you certain things. They call you out your name, daddy, this or whatever. They may, you know, actually ejaculate, you know, squirting or whatever. And so being able to being able to do that and all the things that you witness, that 
does make a difference but again it's not necessarily always about her pleasure it's about it's about the, being able yes. to do that absolutely being able to induce that sort of pleasure in somebody which is again about affirming masculinity yeah it's again about i got such diamond dick that she was screaming i actually you know because i teach you know um you know courses related to this because you know i've you know teach you know i've taught sexuality before i teach race class and gender etc and we you know we we talk about you know the racial um, constructions of pornography. There's a really good book called The Black Body and Ecstasy by um, a scholar named Jennifer Nash, which deals pretty much all about um, how black women in pornography had you know different levels of agency and also different levels of pleasure. It's really sort of a politics of pleasure and in, in what is you know clearly an industry. And you know it's very interesting. So you know I've had because I teach you know um, mixed gender courses. I have non-binary students. I have everything. And I've, I've always had students, particularly males, who will say things like, you know, there was a time in my life I thought, like, if she wasn't screaming, she wasn't enjoying it. Now, screaming is not typically something that bodies do when they're experiencing pleasure. Screaming is actually the pornographic construction that women are supposed to experience a certain level of violence in sex, right? Mm -hmm. And their reaction to it is to scream because good male sexual performance is a violent sexual performance, right? Like we used to talk about this in college, how, um, you know, so many of, and this was particularly like Atlanta and the, you know, 80s, 90s and 2000s, how many of the slang words about sex were just violent words? Or violent, like fuck. Hit it, slash, slay, you know, yeah. stab. Hit it, hit it, beat it up. And yeah. beat it up, Smash, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and these were, you know, and, and that becomes, I think, for, for men, a really uh, thoroughly socialized inability to sex, to, to disaggregate sex from violence. And therefore... To think that a a woman in pleasure is a woman who can take the violence, right? Who can take? For I mean, I look, look. This is this is me telling too much, but there's a lot of positions that are not pleasurable. Well, I'm a, I'm a, you know I'm gonna keep it a buck with you. Some of those positions aren't pleasurable for us either, that's but a, they that's are. Crazy. But they are positions again that you know we we get into the performance of sex, right? And how sex is supposed to look, how sex is supposed to be, yeah. particularly if you are. A black man having sex, how you're supposed to look, how you're supposed to react, how you're supposed to sound, what face you're supposed to make in some of those positions, which, again, you see you see these fucking professionals yeah, yeah. do on screen. They are professionals, what they're doing in terms of their flexibility and the muscle groups that they that they regularly engage. And you think, like, you know what, this is how. It's supposed to happen. This is yeah. how it's supposed to be done. This, and, is, and, what, you know, this the, is what people expect from black male partners. But yeah, it is. It's fascinating just how, just how much of an impact, you know. I guess race, and I guess how we, how we expect people to feel about ourselves. Not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we expect people to feel about ourselves is, you know, impacts the actual performance, um, in the bedroom. Yeah. Now, have you um, when you're teaching, and not just teaching, but when you're encountering, you know, women who were your age. Mm -hmm. When you, you know, first had sex, you know, in your 20s or whatever, are you, do you witness any changes, at least in terms of, all right, because there's, there's been, 
you know, very obvious uh, different connotations with mm-hmm. being sexually free as a black woman mm-hmm. and being sexually free as a white woman. Yes. Right. Now, do you still witness that in terms of the difference in expectation and difference in also consequence? Or is that has that shifted? Since this you is were... so. This is only my guess because I'm not, you know, in really into the social lives of 19 year olds. But my sort of presumption is that for white women and uh, some other sort of non-black women, there really is um, for certain types of them. I won't say for the sort of um, kind of traditional, um, you know, preppy type maybe, but for certain types of them, there certainly is. Um, a more liberal attitude towards sex, particularly for um, for uh, girls and for cis women, et cetera. There's a definitely a more a more liberal idea of how many partners a, a woman can have, or that that's like that's no measure of her desirability. Basically, mm-hmm. owning her own sexuality. I certainly think there is a a, a, a more welcoming attitude towards um, the fluidity of sexuality. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, for, amongst you know, cis women, sometimes amongst cis men at all. Um, the sense that I get from my students is that young women in particular just more easily dismiss, you know, men's judgment of their sex lives. It's like, mm-hmm. it's just it's just not something you can really lob against, particularly women who have other forms of power like race. I don't think that it's entirely disappeared for its ability to affect um, Black women, particularly Black women who are involved with Black partners for this reason. And, and that that's actually like a great point that you bring up. And, mm-hmm. you know, we could even talk more about porn, but I think we, we went into that enough. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it basically is that having sex with Black men is, is the quote-unquote mark. Yeah, like If you're yeah. a white woman who's had sex with Black men, then you, you know, there's a judgment or whatever. It, it and if you're, you're a black woman who's had sex with too many black men, yes. then there's a, then there's also like a, there's also, there, there also could be, you know, and, and it's funny how it's come, it'll come from other, other niggas. It's like, you know, you, this, she slept with like five niggas, but you're a nigga. <laughs> right. So why is this, why, why is this even a, even a conversation or an anxiety that you have? You know, because basically you're saying that what you have, yeah, is inherently dirty. Yeah, because if she's if she's experienced this, you know, with multiple use, then she then there's something wrong with her, and it's like, well, is there something wrong with you? Well, uh, there's look, something wrong I had with us? um, I had a, a college friend, and you know, I knew he was problematic then, um, as you know, we all had problematic friends in college. But his thing used to be a rule for girls, which it, first of all, red flag, you got rules for girls. But his rule was she can't have more partners than she's had boyfriends. Then he would go on to date exactly that girl and not give it a title. So you actually ruined the track record that you said she had to have. And, you know, this goes, I think this is well explained, but this is why I say hoes are amazing because ho, ho Instagram um, ho TikTok is just very liberating. There's, and, there's a ho TikTok. I mean, yes, there are Ho-talk. lots. Ho talk is is like there are lots of women who um are not only openly talking about sex and their sexual agency and really 
putting, you know, putting niggas in into their real place. So example, you know, on that type of thing of, you know, men who have these criteria for women based on their number of partners, whole TikTok would say, it's just funny how you are so obsessed with another man's dick. And what you're really saying is, I don't want to be compared to any number of men that wouldn't have me on the Olympic podium, right? I don't want I don't want her to have enough sexual experience to know that my dick is trash. That's that ultimately that's what it is. That's what it comes down to. I that, would that, agree. That's, that's, that is like that's the core. Like have, I would have agree. you seen Inside Out? No, I have not. Um the the Pixar movie and they have like the core memories. Oh, yeah, but wait, this I is did. the core I did see that, yeah. Yeah, and this is this is the core feeling is yeah. that you the anxiety of comparison. The anxiety right? so of comparison it, and is if you real. have a limited, and so if she yeah. has a limited amount of partners, she don't know no uh, better. Then that means she has a limited amount of absolutely. Yeah, she's had a limited amount of sex, and if, absolutely, if you are able to make her, you know, rock her world. Then, like, holy shit, then her world's been rocked. And the most that is like such a little you. league mindset. That is like a, I don't want no chick who ever played in the majors because because I can go to a little league baseball field and knock them out the park. And welcome back. The depiction of full frontal male nudity is one of the last taboos of the small and big screen. Kind of like putting sugar on grits, except flaccid dicks instead of grits. <laughs> Of course, there are notable exceptions, such as Harvey Keitel in The Piano, Kevin Bacon in Wild Things, Jason Siegel in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and who can forget Dr. Manhattan's three-story wing in The Watchmen movie. But what do each of these men have in common? They're all white, or, in the case of Dr. Manhattan, a glowing and glistening atomic blue. It's even rarer to see a black actor in a full frontal scene. But when it does happen, it's usually a massive porn-sized dick. The locker room scene in Any Given Sunday, the locker room scene in Hall Pass, and the robot locker room scene in Westworld are just a few examples of Hollywood's salacious reinforcement of that racist stereotype. But here's a surprise. Any Given Sunday dick, the Hall Pass dick, and the Westworld dick, they're all the same dick. Just as there are Hollywood stuntmen, there are Hollywood stunt dick men. For 20 years, he's been the gold standard for Hollywood stunt dicking. Everyone, please give a warm welcome to Leroy Whitlock. Leroy, how did you get your start? So a nigga was in line at Arby's one day about to fuck up a Jamocha shake. And this weird white dude was like, hey, yo, you want to be in movies? I was like, sure, I want to be in movies. I mean, you know, who don't want to be in movies? You know what I'm saying? And he told me when and where to show up at the set. So I get there and he's like, hey, yo, can we see it? And I thought he meant my resume, you know, because I, I need a job. You know what I'm saying? I'm here to try to get a job. So I was like, let me show my resume. So I showed it to him. But then he was like, nah, your other resume. And now it's in my zipper. You know, and I ain't. I ain't shy. I ain't shamed. You know what I'm saying? I'm good with mine. So I showed it to him and he nodded and announced very loudly. It looks like we have our dick. And then boom, a stunt dick star was born. Wait, so he didn't even know you were packing. Why'd he even ask you? I, I think he just assumed. Why did he assume? Because I'm a nigga. 
the truth of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter how many women you're around who you who debunk your your stereotypes and all of the sort of trumped up nonsense that we've all been indoctrinated with. What oftentimes matters, just like in, in terms of racism, is who's talking to who. Like men talking to men is what needs to happen. That's Jason Reynolds, who's the author of a billion best-selling books about young people. And he's also been the national ambassador of young people's literature since 2020. And I, I wanted to talk to him because we've had similar experiences and, and anxieties about an act that people, I think, would expect us to have no anxieties about. It's healthy um, for men to, 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 to air it out and to say, this is how I feel. This is how, I re and, and, for, and for somebody to have enough courage to say, Bro, I, I'm scared. Or yo, I'm you know, I'm struggling in this guy. Prime example, my father, you know, and my little brother's in the room. And so please don't tell him I told you. <laughs> Hopefully I thought he had his head. I was hoping he had his headphones on. But one time my father and I, we were hanging out and we were talking about women. Because mm -hmm. I'm at that age where my father is telling me all of his stories, you know, and it's and honestly, it's awesome to be able to uh to see your father as like a regular person mm -hmm. and to hear who he was in 2021, 22, 23. And some of that stuff is interesting and 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 does create bond, right? Mm -hmm. But in the midst of it, he made a comment. Uh, he said, well, you know what they say, Jay? And I'm sure some of you have heard this, and I know you've heard this, Damon, this, this crazy quote that older men say where they're like, if, uh, if, if, uh, if one key opens any lock, it's a master key. <laughs> But if but <laughs> but but if any key will open your lock, it's a shitty lock, right? And mm -hmm. it's this whole sort of idea about men and women and sex, right? Mm -hmm. It's about it's about quote unquote promiscuity mm -hmm. and how a man who sleeps with a lot of women is a, is an awesome man, mm -hmm. and a woman who sleeps with a lot of men uh, is not an awesome woman, mm -hmm. right? And this is all this that and there. And so in this moment, I have an opportunity to let my father know that we ain't on that no more, mm -hmm. right? So I do, because he's my pop and he can't do nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what you about to do? You gonna disown me, right? Mm -hmm. And so I say, yo, man, like, that ain't, I don't agree with that. Like, that's not where we are no more. Like, we moved on. Like, we ain't on that no more. Women mm -hmm. can do whatever they want to do with their bodies. They can have as many partners as they want, and they are not to be judged for it or seen as less than, specifically as it relates to men. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, because I said this to my father, he says, you know what? You absolutely right. And not only are you right, I agree. And not only do I agree, I've always felt that way. As a matter of fact, I used to <laughs> I used to date a sex worker before I met your mother. Oh, wow. And I dated her for almost two years. And the only reason we broke up is because I had your older brother and I didn't want anybody moving into the house. And he loved her. He loved her. A, a working escort. Mm -hmm. They were in a in in a as a monogamous relationship, as I mean, they were in an emotionally monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. And he understood her job respected her, took care of her, and loved her. And this would have been in the, this would have been in the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. But he needed a permission. He just needed a safe space, quote unquote, and I know it's a such a, a buzzword now, but he needed he needed a space to say, I understand that. Mm -hmm. And and I, and that I can now stop performing. Right? I don't have to perform cuz I now understand that you know the script. So the performance is already botched. And that's and, and that's the key. And if someone just kind of just breaks the ice and be like, you know, it's some bullshit. It's some bullshit. We don't yeah. we don't have to do this. We don't have to do. We it. don't have to do this. I mean, shit, man. 
even when we talk about, I mean, a while back we were talking about even sexually, right? Like men don't ever talk about anxiety, mm-hmm. sexual anxiety, right? Like the idea of like that first time is a doozy. Right. Oh yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> and your chest is beating, mm-hmm. and you feel like you go. You're like, look, if I, if if this don't go well, I might vomit all over this person. About <laughs> 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 to puke on this girl, right? Like that's real. And so I remember we did a thing. We did a panel um, at the Black Star Film Fest in Philadelphia, and before the day before the or the morning of the panel, we just happened to run into each other at breakfast, and we were talking about this, and we were with who? We were with a woman, um, my homegirl Jonathan. Yeah. yeah. And we were talking about just that anxiety that men face, particularly your first sexual interaction with a person, and and extra particularly a person that you care about, <laughs> okay? Because you wanna you wanna knock it out the park. You wanna you want her to tell your her homegirls. You want exactly. you want you want to you want you don't want her to forget about you. You want to be able to continue. Yes. And for this not to be like okay, well this nigga was whack. Don't get laughed at. You don't want to get laughed at. And so. That definitely, it, you know, induces a deep anxiety and neuroses and self-consciousness mm-hmm. where you're just wondering, okay, I need to do this. I need to do this. And you know how our, you know, our penises work where if we're fucked up up here. Oh, man. Then that. Especially at this age. Yeah, especially, you know, <laughs> especially when you get a little older. Man. If, if you're fucked up up, up top, then that. Definitely um, be a rough has night. an effect. It's gonna be a rough Definitely night. has an effect on, on your performance. <laughs> and so we were having that conversation, and she, I remember her saying that that was the first time she yeah. had heard. She was so surprised. Men express anxiety or nervousness about that. Yeah, and that's a thing that you know. I, I know a lot of niggas will act like they don't do that, but I can't go in everyone's head. But I know that most of us do. Oh my god! Everybody's, most of us do. everybody's stomach is upset. Everybody, everybody's mm-hmm. having a hard time. I mean, like you don't. There are so many things at play, right? There's so much emphasis put on 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 the penis. First of all, right? Mm-hmm. In general, yeah. On and, and on and 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 everybody's. I mean, this is across the board, right? And that the issue though with men is a man don't know the size of his penis. I, you know what I'm saying? Most of us ain't got no clue in terms of in relationship to what you've had, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, I'm coming in the best I can, mm-hmm. but I don't know if you've had big or smaller. Yeah. And so I'm in relationship and in context with that. It's a very real thing, right? Yeah. But because we don't know going into it, you're like, I'm just hoping whatever's happening, I hope, I, I hope mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm hoping, because you just don't, like, it's not like, I, it's one of those weird things. Van Latham, uh, you know Van Latham? Yeah. Mm. Yo, dopest thing I think he's ever said. He talked about his father, about this very issue. He said mm. his father pulled him in the room one day and said, look, you 16 or whatever. He's like, you 16. So I know you've already measured the size of your dick. I know you, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're taking out your ruler. You look to see, like, where you stand. Uh-huh. And he said, I don't have to know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. Just know that whatever size it is, right, if it's, if it's big, he said, whatever size it is, you stuck with it. Mm-hmm. So if it's too big, you're going to have to figure out how to be gentle. And if it's too small, you're going to have to figure out how to work with it. Either way, the side, whatever it is, you can't allow how you feel about it to wow. ruin other people's lives. That is it. Mm-hmm. Like in a nutshell, you can't allow how you feel about it, good or bad or whatever, mm-hmm. to ruin other people's lives. Yeah. And we do it. We all do it all the time. time. We do it all, <laughs> all the time. time. All, all the overconversation. Oh all of God. the, you know, just all the efforts to 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 mask that anxiety that that vulnerability, that self-consciousness. And yeah, you know, like you were saying, 
it, it is talking to your homegirl and 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 hearing her response to that just made me just really think about just how little we actually talk about that particularly just penises <laughs> and size and not really knowing unless you watch porn because that's that's really the only time you're gonna see yeah because you just not, assume that yeah. on porn is like and, and that's uh, the thing like if, if that's your first star. if that's your and the thing is if you're like 11 12 13 years old and that's your first time seeing another penis you're like holy shit I'm losing out. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not licensed still. <laughs> That's so hilarious. Like, I'm doomed. <laughs> and then you know you get older and you realize that oh yeah, they're that's wider in that yeah. industry. You've also never known a woman like a yeah. <laughs> like I, I think that if we were collectively to allow ourselves to be more vulnerable, to allow ourselves to 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 allow ourselves more space to break down those you know, th- those performances and, and, and articulate those performances as a bullshit that they are, then I think that you'll see less of that, less mm. of us being expected to be a certain way. It's fair. You know, and um, and again, this is... That might be true. It might know. be true. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It could be wishful thinking. So a few days after we had sex, she called me. She wanted to know how I was doing and wanted to know if anything was wrong with her. She gave me an opening. Like, I could have told her right then that it was my first time and that I was terrified of disappointing her and that that terror was all I could think about. I could have also realized that she had anxieties too. She had doubts too. She had fears too. She also wondered if she was inadequate. Of course, I didn't acknowledge any of that. I just said, nah, everything cool? And she just let it go. The relationship continued for a couple months. I mean, we hook up on a weekend, and then we wouldn't speak to or see each other again until the next weekend. And I, I think it got better, but I wonder still how much better it could have been if I just told her the truth. I mean, I think she knew anyway, but what if she heard it from me and neither of us felt the need to perform anymore? Performance just takes up so much space that there's no room left for pleasure. And I wonder how good I could have felt, how good she could have felt, how good we could have felt if we could just be... Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Belez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgreen.